All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're going to jump right into it. And joining us now is the one and only Jeff Lepper, of course, covering the Quakes, MLSsoccer.com. Jeff, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing great, Ted. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, man. Just uh, counting down the days till we get closer to the start of the 2018 MLS season. Obviously, there is uh, some uh, CONCACAF stuff going on this week uh, involving uh, Toronto and Colorado that everybody's going to be paying attention to. And I'm just, I'm just curious in terms of an off season and your time on the on the beat. Has anything really compared to what you've seen from when you know the regular season ended in 2017 for the entirety of the league, and then especially for the Quakes and all the moves they've made and just all the all the moves the league itself has made with the different teams going after big players? No, I mean, certainly, you know, the league in the last two seasons, especially this year, you know, there's really been an injection of, of money from the single entity uh, that is MLS that signs all these guys. And, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to, to spend more and they're willing to go out. They're, they're thinking bigger. You know, there's been, for a long time, you know, it was, not necessarily what teams did, but now they're they're really they're going out and they're reaching you know after players that that wouldn't have really thought about MLS I think five years ago. So that, that this really has been a, a season, I think a significant jump in terms of the, the level of quality that MLS is aspiring to and uh, is able to reach. It's interesting because this comes on the heels of the same time we're getting more and more expansion. And before this, you know, the the shadows of what happened with the failed NASL back in the in the 70s and into the 80s was always in the mind of everyone who was becoming a fan of Major League Soccer from 1996 on. Do, do you think it's gotten to the point where they don't have to fear now about being overzealous or falling into the same um, traps that the old NASL did? Well, they, they certainly they designed the league specifically to avoid that. You know, that's that's why they kept single entity even after, you know, teams have shown that, you know, they they maybe don't need that at this point in time. I think there are some teams that are, you know, maybe itching to get rid of that and be able to spend more money and, and you know, spend more freely as teams do uh, in the rest of the world. Um, so I, I, I do think that, you know, MLS is – you know, fairly permanent. I mean, as as anything can be. I mean, we've seen you know this year with the the decrease in NFL ratings. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, ten years from now, you know, there's a real sea change on that, and and you wind up, you know, saying, you know, to the young kids, you know, I remember when the NFL was something that everybody watched <laughs> every Sunday, and you know, and, and you know, things are totally different. So I I, I do think, as far as we can see, you know, as far as the crystal ball can. Be, that MLS is, is here to stay and is, is still on the upswing. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the NFL um, in this discussion because that's something that I am uh, I'm prone to do, probably because it's I feel it's one of my best talking points, and I'm just going to hammer it to death. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think. You know, we all look at what Arthur Blank is doing with Atlanta, and they are getting great returns from the money that he's investing into them. And yes, he was helped by the fact that he had a new venue going hand in hand with the Falcons, and that's something that Minnesota United they had to you know deal with their own stadium, so they had different financial um, concerns compared to the Falcons. But I do believe that as the NFL dealing with all the injury related stuff uh, and the CTE and the concussions and all that, as that popularity starts to wane. I think a guy like Jerry Jones is going to look at the, whenever it does happen, a sale in a couple of years of an Ezekiel Barquio, of a Miguel Almiron. A Jerry Jones is going to look at that and say, wait a minute, he made how much money selling that guy to another team? 
and you're going to see a Jerry Jones jumping into the fray and other NFL teams. And I'm, I'm honestly surprised that Bob Kraft up in New England hasn't done more with that franchise up to this point. Well, Bob's been a little busy, you know, winning, trying to figure out where to put all of the, the Super Bowl trophies. And, you know, how, how do they – does that, does that look good? Is that centered? No, we need to, I don't know. we got to make room for another one. You know, so he's been – He's been a little tied up, I, you know, and I, and I do think, you know, uh, it, it is something that, that I think he could make more out of. You know, I think that if, you know, they, they had a soccer-specific stadium there instead of what they've got, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the revolution could be, you know, once again, you know, one of the premier teams in MLS. Um, but, you know. Again, he's got other he's got other concerns right now. Yeah, he does. It's it's a, it's a good problem to have. I just I just want him to be greedy, just because I think that that is a uh, that's a market that is is waiting to be kind of re-energized, and we'll see obviously what Brad Friedel has in store for that for that franchise upcoming in the 2018 season. But it it is interesting because I, I do look at the the news cycle of the NFL. I thought that was their best. Um, factor in their growth is they just made such a big deal out of the news cycle whether it was the the injury reports whether it was talking about just any little aspect and you kind of saw the NBA jump into that the NBA has done a tremendous job marketing the literal news as news and it sounds counterintuitive but they they do a very good job of it and I think this offseason really hammered home to me the idea that Major League Soccer has gotten more on board with that idea of let's hype our own news as news and it's it's an interesting turn in the journalistic take of how we view sports. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you, you want to keep yourself current year-round. You know, even though MLS doesn't play for, you know, the winter months, you can't just go dormant and expect that March 3rd people will show up and pack it by a stadium if you haven't kept yourself in the news and haven't, you know, ha- haven't kept fans' interests stoked with, you know, even if you're not having signings, you know, having, you know, stories out there about why this guy is going to, you know, come back and, and why, how this is going to, how, how this, you know, player is going to fit and, and all of these pieces. Obviously, the Quakes, you know, have not lacked for news this year no. uh, in the offseason. They've made, you know, so many moves that uh, your head kind of spins with it. But I, I, I do think that, you know, you want to keep yourself on on the, the forefront of people's minds year-round. It, it definitely helps. Again, we're talking to Jeff Lepper right here on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050. And in terms of what Jesse Fiorinelli has done in his, his short time here, barely over a calendar year with the earthquakes now, um, I mean, what, what was your view of him when he was hired and then now looking at what he's done in this offseason with a full offseason? How do you view it, um, you know, your 30,000-foot view of it all? Well, he's he's widened the reach of the Quakes significantly. You know, I mean, th- this week obviously saw them, you know, c- cut ties with Simon Dawkins, who was the, the last DP of the John Doyle era. And, you know, Simon was a, you know, comfortable DP signing, I think, for the Quakes at that point because he was a known quantity. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have to go out and, you know, look at maybe someone who they didn't know, you know, they signed in 2016 after coming off of the innocent misfire. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, that was someone who was brought to them by league scouts who they didn't really know, and it, you know, clearly backfired and didn't work. And, you know, Jesse came in with 
you know, a, a set of contacts and a level of knowledge and a breadth of knowledge that, that really was much more global. And so, and, and, you know, and he, and he came in with a, a plan of, you know, we're going to collect talent from all of these different locations. And they've done that, you know, this off season, they've, they've gone to, to Reno and they've picked guys up. They've signed homegrown guys. They've used the draft and they've signed guys, you know, from both Europe and South America. And, and they've, you know, they've, they've brought guys in on loan. They've signed guys permanently. They've, they've used all these different avenues and mechanisms to make themselves better. And, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of parts and, you know, I think that all stems from the fact that Jesse's got knowledge in all of these areas. And it, with all those moving parts and with all the things that have been happening, it's interesting that what w- will be a talking point as the season gets, um, you know, more into the latter stages, I, I believe, will be Wondolowski and his chasing down of Landon Donovan. But that has been pushed you know, kind of to the background in terms of off-season stories. I know now it'll get talked as the season's coming around a little bit more, but it's interesting, even though the defense was such a big problem um, last year, especially on the road, it does feel like the Quakes suddenly have depth in the attack for the first time since, I mean, 2012. It seems like they have put themselves in a good position where the load is not entirely on the shoulders of Chris Wondolowski. Well, and not even the goal scoring, but just simply having guys in uniform. I mean, how many, you know, how many matches did you call in the last, you know, two years where, you know, the Quakes have only four field players available <laughs> on the bench because of, you know, injuries and other, they just, they just didn't have the body. Yeah. You know, now they've got, I mean, I was, I was looking through here. I, I think you can legitimately make a case for like 17 field players being, you know, starting caliber right now. They, they never had that kind of depth and it gives, you know, it gives Mikel a lot of options in terms of what he wants to do, how he wants to line things up, and it and it will be very interesting. And yeah, I mean, you know, the the reason that you know Wando had a new career best in assists last year was that you know he had you know he had more help, yeah. and more guys to, <laughs> to pass to who could finish. And so yeah, I, I do think you know certainly they're they're not going to lack i mean if if this preseason is any indication i don't think they're going to lack for goals it, it is going to be interesting to see if they can fix some of the defensive um uh, holes that they had uh, in the second half of last year yeah and you know i i looked at a lot of the the film on the road last year i would come back to the hotel and i don't i don't know why i would do it but i would go and i'd i'd rewatch the games after you know losing four nothing you know four two five one I, they all kind of ran together and i i felt bad especially for andrew tarbell because yeah there were some goals that he he could have stopped but at the same time just the amount of times they left themselves open to the counterattack. i mean just getting rid of that functionality in terms of what they were doing with their offense, which I understand what Chris Leach was trying to do. And I, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm never going to say or second guess because he knows more than I could ever even forget, but just, I think changing that style of play that that's got to improve the defense in and of itself. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's sort of twofold items, right? I mean, one is, you know, Leach never took his foot off the gas and said, "Look, if we're going to lose, you know, let's let's go out there and just keep firing. You know, let's 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 we're not going to pull back when we give up a goal and then try to you know sneak a smash and grab with an equalizer in the 90th minute. We're going to just go out. You know, we're going to keep bombing away, and yet you know, that did leave them open, obviously to counterattacks that that hurt them. Mm-hmm. And I think the second part of that was, you know, as as Florian Youngworth said, you know, late in the year, you know, 
we just mentally are not, you know, we have to, to not give up. We have to not, you know, allow ourselves to kind of crumble, I think might have been the word he used, uh, you know, after we give up that first goal. Because that's kind of what kept happening was that first goal would come and then the floodgates would open and, you know, things would just, you know, spiral downhill from there. So I think that's, that's you know, the, the twofold things they're going to do is not necessarily look to bomb forward as much because they don't necessarily have to do that when you have more attacking talent on the pitch and you have, you know, higher caliber talent out there. You don't have to push numbers as, as hard as they did. And then secondly, also, you know, yeah, it's a, a bit of a mental tune-up in terms of, of keeping that, that strength and, you know, when there's adversity coming back from that. Again, we're talking to Jeff Lepper right now here on the Soccer Hour KMBR 1050. Of all the new off-season acquisitions, who are you most uh, most excited to see this year? Well, uh, certainly locally, I'm I'm excited to see Magnus Eriksson. Yeah, um, you know that's that's going to be, you know that's that's their their most expensive player since they've come back, and I mean it's you know that that could be a a big piece of the puzzle for them. So, yeah, I mean, you know, out there on the right wing. I, I'll be interested to see if they really, you know, Jameer Kiko on the left and Erickson on the right are both inverted linkers. And, you know, last year you saw them when, when they when they had Chris take over from, from Dom Kinnear, you know, they stopped playing, you know, the, the classic sort of Dom ball was, you know, launching in crosses with, you know, wingers who were, you know, the same foot or who were classic wingers mm-hmm. with their – strong foot on the outside, launching those crosses. And, you know, under Leach, they played it so much more on the floor and across the pitch, you know, from side to side. And that really plays into bringing an inverted winger in, bringing someone in to, to catch the ball, change direction, and, you know, come to the center of the pitch with the ball on their strong foot to look for that shot at the top of the box, look to, to, to hit the far post. You know, it's it's – I mean, it's very interesting to see how all these pieces play and and how how they fit together. But I do think that Erickson's going to be, you know, the the person who gets the most interest and he gets the most watched, certainly at the start of the year. We will continue this conversation with Jeff Lepper of MLSsoccer.com on the other side next. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050. We're talking to Jeff Lepper of MLSsoccer.com. There's a lot of changes, and with the new head coach, uh, Michael Starre, um, you know, he's a guy who said right off the bat, I'm not going to force the system onto these guys. We're going to see what's here and, and go from there. Um, I, I took to that, you know, w- with positive um, impact because a lot of times the coach will come in and say, this is, you know, this is what I do, and you better fit to that mold. I, you know, I take the NBA narrative of a, of a Tom Thibodeau and even though that he's a good coach and I don't like his his way being the only way to go about things what did you think of, of Starry talking about that just kind of being open to seeing what's there and kind of adjusting around the talent that's in-house well I think you know that's what that's what any good coach is going to say <laughs> uh, I, I think the strength that he's got you know he's got to learn what guys can do I mean he's seen them on tape but he hasn't seen them up close and you know when you're watching guys on tape is that because you know are they doing these things because that's their natural inclination? Are they doing things because they have limitations or are they doing things because that's what, you know, previous coaches were telling them to do. You know, you, you, you kind of have to suss all of that out and, mm-hmm. and figure out what you've got. So I think that there's, to some extent there's going to be that, you know, there's going to be trying and, and different things that, that he's going to do early in the year. You know, I mean, they could easily go, 
you know, four two three one. They could go four three three, which you know, which he's used a lot. They could go, you know, four four two. Obviously, that's maybe the the formation that fits Wando the best. But then it becomes a question of who else gets out there with him. If yeah. you're playing Wando behind Danny Hooson, then you know where does Vaco fit? Because then do you put him out and and you know he is coming off the bench? Do you have like what what do you you know how do you how do you fit that in? And you've also got, I mean again I mean and this is a, this is a good problem for them to have. But then you know where's Tommy Thompson playing? Where's Jackson Ewell? You know where's is is Youngworth partnering Godoy or is it Youngworth versus Godoy for for playing at the six? Is it what you know who's? I mean it's 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 good problems to have. But I I do think that Starry can make a lot of choices and go a lot of different ways depending on you know how he wants to set up for a specific match. Jeff, appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, so I will let you go. But uh, this has been fun. We'll do it again soon. And I will, uh, I'll see you out of Dubai soon, all right? Sounds great. Thanks, Ted. All right. Thank you again. That is Jeff Lepper. You can find his work, MLSsoccer.com. And if you're not following him on Twitter, you should be at Quakes Beat. We are now lucky enough to be joined by the one and only Bobby Warshaw. Of course, Stanford product turned to a Major League Soccer player. Then he was in Europe. Now he's turned into an author and he's turned to the dark side, is now part of the media with people like myself. If you have not uh, gotten his book, you need to. It is called When the Dream Became Reality. It is a available on amazon.com and bobby when we last talked it was right before your book came out in july i'm curious what um what has the reception been from not necessarily the readers but but other players because i th- we talked a lot about the stuff in the book when it was coming out and i'm, I'm curious how players currently or that were in major league soccer or just professional soccer players in general have um responded to you about what you had to write that has just, that's been the part that's meant the most to me, actually. So it's that when I wrote this book, really when I started writing four or five years ago, I wanted to be a voice for players. You know, I felt like there's this disconnect between players and the media. And I just wanted to be someone that could put out the players' feelings and, I don't know, just get, get fans to understand really what's going on in our lives and through our minds. So whatever I've written in my life, I've always wanted to speak for the players. When I hear from them, it's always meant the most, and I've gotten some good reactions. And that's felt really good. Players teammates and random people out of nowhere have texted me um to answer your question they've been wonderful and it's, it's really it's felt good that's good. It's really interesting to me because I've talked to Tommy Thompson and Nick Lima about this because they were the first two homegrown, the homegrown signings for the San Jose Earthquakes. And, you know, if anybody prepared them to be a professional soccer player, because, you know, Tommy was 18 when he signed with the Quakes and, you know, he's going out there making his first appearances for a professional team in the Bay Area. That's that's a big deal. Nick was a little bit older, but, you know, Tommy just kind of said that, you know, he went out there and, you know, watched what Wando did and watched what, you know, John Bush did, paid attention to these guys, but I look at some of these new signings, uh, Jake and Akib Urich, Gilbert Fuentes, 15 and 16-year-old kids who are now professional athletes. Like They should read your book, right? Because there's, I know there's a symposium for the rookies, but I mean, there's still truly no preparing anyone for becoming a professional athlete, at least not the way I see it. You know, I hope this doesn't sound like a salesman pitch, but I wrote the book for those kids. Yeah. I, I wrote the book for that 15-year-old who wants to be a professional player, and partially because there's some nuggets in there that I think are important soccer-wise, but also just emotionally, that what are you getting yourself into? What does it take to, you know, quote-unquote, live this dream? And then it, also, it scares the crap out of me for these 15, 16-year-olds to turn professional, right? There's got to be 
some allotment for a kid to be a kid in life. And mm-hmm. I get it. It's an opportunity and it's a paycheck. And there's so many wonderful things. And I don't want to downplay the, the privilege of the opportunity. But just as humans, we should think about the cost as well. And that, you know, on that team are 28, 30, 35 year olds who have to, you know, have to do something to, to pay their mortgage and put their food on the table. And it just feels weird to thrust a 15 or 16 year old out of chem class in that <laughs> environment. And it, yeah, it worries the heck out of me. It's it's wild, man, because I think back to when I was 15, 16 years old, which, you know, we're, we're going back to 1997, 1998. But I mean, I was running track and playing high school football. I wasn't the, the, the mere idea of being a professional athlete at that point, I, I couldn't even begin to wrap my head around it, especially all I know about it today. And I even had a, a different look at it because my dad was a sports broadcaster, so I was around it. But the idea of all these guys just being around it, 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 it absolutely blows my mind. And yeah, it is. You do wonder about where, you know, where does the childhood get lost? But at the same time, I mean, there's professional and financial opportunity, especially in the world of professional sports, that's really unlike anything else. Exactly. You know, it's, we talk about winning the World Cup. We talk about the national team getting better. And it, it always just feels so weird to me, right? Because to do that, we have to make huge sacrifices. We have to, if we're going to ramp up the academy system, we're going to put a lot more at risk for these kids. If we say, hey, you can't play other sports, you have to miss school, you have to do all these things, that's a huge risk. And for what, the World Cup? I mean, we all, I don't mean to make it weird about this whole Make America Great Again thing, but it's like we actually <laughs> do truly love America. We love what America symbolizes. That's education, that's university, mm-hmm. that's all these things. And obviously I'm not like, you know, for this Make America Great Again thing, but <laughs> just in that general idea of what, what we value as Americans, it's more than sport, right? So how much do we truly care about this idea of winning a World Cup and how much will we sacrifice? It just feels like we're we're so angry about the World Cup qualifying, and we're in such a rush to to win the World Cup. We're not thinking about these things. We're not thinking about what, who we are as Americans, what we value. And then if we do want to win a World Cup, how do we integrate that in? You know, if we're a society who cares about creating well-rounded individuals and who cares about university, maybe we can use it to our advantage somehow. So I might be dead wrong on all this, but like like you said, throwing like 15 and 16 year olds in this world just feels. Does that feel a little wrong? And, and is there a way we can reconcile these things with our, you know, with our sporting aspirations? Well, it's so weird because, and I know this is maybe a bit of a leap of a comparison, but you, I assume, and you saw the article that uh, Kristen Pulisic did for the Players Tribune, where he talked about the opportunity that he had with the with the European passport, and he was able to go over there and you know train in the academy system and have that incredible experience from the age of you know sixteen and seventeen, but. Here's here's where I have a disconnect because LeBron James he was ready for the NBA right out of high school and he was at that level so I don't I always I, not that I think Christian was being disingenuous but like I do look at him and I'm like no nah, man you had you have an athletic skill set that rarely anyone has. I mean, I still feel like we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of how good he can be. So when I when I hear him saying that it's necessary for all these guys to be going to Europe, does that I, – I don't know. I, I just – I still don't know how to quite take it all in because I feel that he's looking at it through his own paradigm, which is one that is – I think regardless of whether or not he was in Europe, he was probably going to turn into a pretty darn amazing soccer player – Anyway, yeah, he's got he's got to turn into an amazing soccer player. You know, either way, I'm probably with you on that. But does I mean, did you agree with him that 
that, that all the players have to be going, you know, need to be training with the first team at the ages of 16 and 17? Like, maybe the better question is why is soccer different in that regard? Because, you know, we are producing great baseball and football and basketball and hockey and swimming and gymnastics and track and field, and they're not competing at a near professional level when they're 15, 16 years old. I guess I guess the question is why why is soccer so different in that regard? I wish I had a great answer to you on that. It really is a million dollar question, right? How do we maximize development? There's I will say a couple of things on this, right? To remember is that for LeBron James, there's I don't know, fifteen, twenty dudes who left high school and we forgot their names. Yeah. You know, how many how many Kwame <laughs> Browns are there to every LeBron? <laughs> or how many Christian there's the thing about Christian plus like we we act like this is the first time in a big American player American players ever been a big club. We had Jovan Krosky and Kenny Cooper and all these guys, John Thornton, we had all these guys who didn't have you know, didn't make the millions of dollars and those three had good careers, so it's not a great example. But we've always had guys video. We've always had guys leave high school and we just forget their names, right? Now mm-hmm. they're doing what I mean miss out on their prime college years uh, so listen I might be the wrong person to ask about this I wanted to win a World Cup desperately like everyone else Yeah. but at the same time you know like what are we willing to to give up to get there but here's one thing I will say about going to Europe it's that I don't know if the right thing to do is when you're 15 or 16 but beyond the soccer part if you can somehow find a, a way to grow as an individual if you can somehow find a way to use that experience probably when you're 20 opposed to 17 or 18 yeah I do tell all young players go to Europe because there is merit in this idea of being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, yeah. So I don't like the idea when you're 17 or 18, but if you can do it a couple of years later when you have a when you're a little more grounded, you're a little less to to lose. I'm like, there's a lot of people out there saying, Bobby, no, Bobby, no, that's not what we need. But like I said, I I just like to see us think about the Steven part of this as well as the the soccer part. No, and I, and I think that's fair, and that's why I was I was so kind of. Um, Again, I didn't think he was being disingenuous in the slightest because I thought, again, from his worldview, that's the way his narrative took him. That was his path. But, you know, it's like you can still, to me, improve as an athlete. Like you're not done if you don't, to me, if it's not there at 16 and 17. Like there's tons of guys in tons of sports who have developed later on in their careers. And, I, you know, I mean, I know it's comparing apples and oranges, but I look at how many NFL quarterbacks start off, they're not that great, and then suddenly as they get, you know, multiple years into their career, the mental side clicks with the physical side, and suddenly they turn into better players. And to me, that's not that's not something that's really – it's it's part of every athlete's kind of buildup. That's how they turn into the player they end up being. Well, it's Wanda, right? I'm literally writing this article on Chris Wondolowski right now, yeah. trying to figure out what did we miss? You know, did we miss <laughs> anything? Maybe he literally just wasn't good at 23. Maybe he only had good enough at 26 or 27. So I'm with you. I mean, there, there's, there's parts of this paradigm we just have to figure out. And when I look at the election, when I look at you know, the U.S. election, I look at all these things, and everyone just is throwing off these ideas how we blow up the model. It just doesn't make sense, man. Like, we are... <laughs> I'm, I really have no idea how great our country America is, how great it's ever been, but there still feels like there's something America about our country. And there's something like parts of me taken out of those ideals. So this whole idea that like we need to rush kids to Europe or build our model based around Europe without saying, what do we do as a country? What are the things we value to figure out all these questions, right? Like when does a player in America peak? How can we get to, I don't know. So there's a bunch of these questions that I think are extremely nuanced, like you said, uh, that we're just not tackling appropriately. 
We'll continue this talk with player-turned-author. Now you see his work on MLSsoccer.com. It's Bobby Warshaw, and we'll finish it up with him on the other side. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050. We are continuing our conversation with Bobby Warshaw, former player turned author. Now you see his work on MLSsoccer.com. Of course, talking about the U.S. soccer election. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. It's like I feel that everyone talking about the U.S. soccer presidential election, it's I felt like everybody was looking at this as this electing this one person who was going to make this change. And I kept on looking at it and saying to myself, there are so many questions and there are so many potential answers. I felt like people were looking for way too much from one election. Not that I don't think leadership is very, very important, but for me, this is such a multi-level, you know, trying to weigh the different importance of different factors. It's it's never going to be just one person making the change, nor do, do we really know exactly what the change needs to be. I mean, again, there's people out there saying, we need to copy exactly what this is, or we need to do what they're doing, promotion, relegation, blah, 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 so, you know, on and on and on. I just kind of felt to myself, it was like, how, if people are looking for one person to come in and have all the answers, then I just... I don't even know where to begin with that because they 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 shouldn't have the answers. If there was that one person who had the answer, I like to think they would have risen to power previously. Yeah, seriously. No, I'm with you. It's there's there's tough there's tough answers, but first we have to figure out the right questions to ask, mm-hmm. which we haven't taken the time to do. Well, that but but people they, they don't want to ask the questions. They want results. I mean that I mean that goes back to I mean, the asking the questions isn't fun. There's <laughs> no fun to be had of asking the questions. But, pe- but, but okay, so what's the first question you would ask then? Bobby Warshaw can go up there with Carlos Cadero and say, hey, I need your answer to this. Oh, that's great. <laughs> what, <laughs> now that so I put my, you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, this is good. I mean, this is something I thought about. I think the way you framed the question threw me off. But let's put this way. The first two things that I would talk to to Carlos about were – how many kids are we missing out on and why, mm-hmm. right? So we talk about this pay-to-play thing, but like, what is the real why to why we're missing out on these kids? And like, why is it because they actually can't afford it because they're on the scholarships? Um, that's a bad answer. I don't have a good answer. That's a really... <laughs> That's a that's a good frame of the question. I don't have a good answer to it. Well, but I mean, that's if you talk about the pay-to-play. I mean, that's something that baseball has turned problematic in America. Baseball previously was something that was, hey, you know, you it was it was stickball back in the day. All you needed was you know makeshift bags and balls and bats, and you had yourself a way to go. But suddenly, people talk about baseball like it's this uber expensive sport. And I, you know, for me, I, you know, I was born in 1982. I don't remember my parents spending oodles of money on it. But now you look at the cost of of right. bats when you go to like big five and it's like whoa right. when when did that happen and it, it's interesting i mean i i know the 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 head coach of the honduran national team talked about this after playing the u.s and said kids in america get an ipad for christmas kids in honduras get get a soccer ball i mean it is 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 it stuff like that 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 changes the totally. the the, totally. the framework of it but okay then if, me, if, if that does change actually, it but a... sorry what was that sorry go ahead i was like i I do have an answer to that. Okay, I don't know sure. Why I didn't give you a good one. Can I give you a better answer? <laughs> yeah, by all means. No, I don't know why I didn't. I didn't just say this. So let me give you an example. Like we talk about pay to play. I mean, take these big buzzwords: pay to play and promotion relegation. Like, what does promotion relegation do for you? Right? Where it's like, oh, promotion relegation, you know, it helps things. But like, what do we really need to help? Is the question, right? Like, do we not have enough kids in the system? Are we not developing them properly? 
what are the things we actually need to fix? And for me, it's coaches, right? It's like, do we need pay to play to get better co- coaches? No, like we don't actually need promotion relegation. Or sorry, do we need promotion relegation to get better coaches? No, we just need better coaches, right? So like, instead of spending all the money on promotion relegation, why don't we spend money on coaches? Or you know, for pay to play, like why does pay to play really matter? And the answer is like, it's not actually to to find better kids. It's just like have a more inclusive society, right? Mm-hmm. So have America where you don't need, you know, $3,000 a year to play soccer. Like, we don't need pay-to-play to, you know, find that one national team star. We need it because it's, like, good for the soul of our country. And once we, like, have a, have a good soul of our country for soccer, then we can start to, like, find who we are and what we want to produce. Yeah. So I think we have these big sweeping generalizations so I think about the underlying questions that we're actually trying to solve. Well, is there... If we actually wanted, if, if we actually wanted to figure out, like, oh, we just need better coaches, then if we can waste all this damn time talking about everything else, then we could solve out how to get better coaches. Well, I mean, that... you know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, it, it does make sense. So, here's the problem I have with that: is I feel like we're, and you talk about it. I love that you've hammered kind of home the idea of the the American reality and paying attention to what America is. If we are constantly judging ourselves by the rest of the world and looking at what they do and not having the same level of success shouldn't we then be looking internally at other sports inside the united states that are successful and trying to copy aspects of that because i mean i i know basketball is a is a very very different sport but it's it seems like there is a model there where kids have had a cultural background of going and playing pickup basketball considerably over the last you know, 30, 40 years. That was a cultural norm, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've produced you know, LeBron James and Michael Jordans and Magic Johnsons. You know, it, it took over kind of that, and I think it is in the process still of being you know, America's number one sport, overtaking the NFL. But that, that's that same idea where kids get a basketball and they just go out there and they play and they play and they play. There's got to be something that soccer can learn from that and derive from it and use to their advantage. Totally. This thing is, you know, if I had if I had three things that I was going to talk to Cordero about, it would be coaches. It would be about just making the game more inclusive. But also, yeah, how do we get kids to just play soccer for fun? I think that's you're exactly it because there's a, there's only so much you can teach on a training field, right? There's only so much level of comfort on the ball and manipulation of the ball and just comfort in tricky situations you can teach on a training field. And we need kids to play off. You know, away from practice more. How? I'm not sure. Whether that's just like build fields, whether that's build, you know, fake leagues, what you do, I have no idea. Go yeah. back to your point about basketball and these sports. I call it basketball and baseball and football and what we can learn from them is it's like nobody else does that. Right? It's literally a mar it's it's I'm not it's trying to someone out from a market that there's only one company. Right. So we don't know if that one company is efficient since nobody else does it. Yeah. You know, the I maybe you're right about swimming, gymnastics. I'm not sure what's interesting about those. Is they just work way freaking harder than soccer players do. Like, who in world, like, who in, I don't know who in history decided that it was right for a swimmer to do two practices a day, but only a soccer player to only do one, right? Why is it that an elite high school swimmer is six days a week and they're at 6 a.m. and 4 p.m., mm-hmm. but a soccer player only trains an hour and a half a day? Right? Like, who, who is the person throughout world history that decided that? soccer players only do so much work okay but then we get back if we're going to talk about these other sports then people will talk about the sacrifice childhoods of elite level gymnasts because they you know it's it's gymnastics life from 8 a.m to 4 p.m for them with homeschooling involved and yeah they might get on you know on the olympic stage and have you know platforms that we can only dream of and I'm, you know, I'm not even going to talk about the the other stuff that's been going on in the news lately because that's that's a whole other issue. But I mean, that's a life that is 
essentially sacrificed for the gold medal where they say you're going to be a gymnast you're not a child you're a gymnast it's true my my general thought that and you totally called me out this is totally a double standard i'm holding this conversation <laughs> my only thought to that is that those are individual sports yeah right where you say i want to do it. i want to push myself there's something else about being on a team because you want to be on that team and that team is making up I don't know. You're right. I've totally created a double standard in this conversation, tripping myself up. No, it's it's fine though because they, I mean this is this is the point, Bobby. I mean, we're, we're, there are these different conversations that need to be had, and I, you know, I I get it that there's. I think this kind of hammers home the idea is that still nobody knows exactly how, how to how to fix it, and not not that I'm expecting you and I to sit down for 20 minutes and say, all right, we're going to fix soccer in the United States right now. I mean, there. It's 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 a multi-pronged, multi-tiered. I mean, there's so many things to get into, but I, I feel like there aren't enough discussions like this. I feel like people come into a room and they're either ticked off about something or they come in and they say they immediately have all the answers or like you alluded to, people need to be better at coming in with all the questions. It just, it, the entire process right now feels entirely too combative for anything to get done, which is probably a, 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 a trickle-down effect from how our government works, but I feel I feel like just a, there's just too much tension everywhere in the soccer community because everybody in their own mind has the right answer the right worldview the right way to fix it but really nothing's getting done and i listen I, i've got to wait and see what carlos cordero, cordero does but it again like am i wrong does it i mean you're the guy who played professionally does it feel as tense as i'm perceiving it i couldn't agree more that i actually bob bradley said it best he said we just don't talk about soccer things we don't ask soccer questions and I, I, that's why this conversation has been so fun for me because we've I've talked myself into a circle. We haven't solved anything, <laughs> but at some point you just gotta you just gotta try, right? You just have to talk. You just have to ask hard soccer questions and chip away at them. So I'm totally with you. And the worst part is when you do ask soccer questions, people talk at you, mm-hmm. right? They tell you what should happen. I tell you, like let's. And Claudia Reyna said it a while ago about you know being more humble. And at the time I scoffed at it, but the deeper and deeper I get. I, I do think it's true. It's that we don't have right answers and we can't take answers from anyone else. And we do have to just have hard conversations. We're not going to get anywhere. Ultimately, someone needs to make an executive decision on what they think is best. But I'm with, with you and we just need to have. And if you read, I hope if, if people have been reading my stuff, I'm most off here listening to me on Extra Time Radio, mm-hmm. that that's the gist that they get. That I actually don't. People are like, oh, man, you've got these wild takes. I don't have a single freaking take in this world. <laughs> I just like do a lot of research and have a thought on it. And hopefully my thought, even if you disagree, gets you to think more deeply about mm-hmm. it. So I, I couldn't agree more with you that we just need to take swings with these really hard questions and get them wrong a ton but chip away. Because uh, it doesn't seem like that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, Again, we're talking to Bobby Warshaw right now here on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050, having an absolutely fantastic time doing so. I, I want to shift gears while I've still got you because I want to steal too much more of your time. But, uh, man, this offseason for 2018 for Major League Soccer and the buildup has been phenomenal. Um, I mean, this to me, this offseason in particular felt like a – a, a shift of the waters, changing of everything. And I, I just I feel like again, maybe this is because Toronto's coming off such a historic season, and Atlanta's going out there and they're trying to you know operate like a, a big European club and the things they're doing. But it does feel like when we go back, we're going to talk about this off season ten, twenty, thirty years from now as kind of a a watershed moment. At least that's how I'm viewing it. Yeah, it does feel like we've hit MLS four 
you know, it's in my head. That's really, you know, if we've moved away from the DP model, the big names model, to younger players, developing players, hopefully selling them, it does feel like a new MLS. Uh, with that said, it is hard to navigate how all this works. Like, what the what the heck does TAM mean? How do you use your TAM? What players are good enough? What players aren't good enough? What new style works? Right? There was a certain style for 22 years that was pretty trusty in this league, a certain level of tactical nuance that you could you know, trust would work. And it just it doesn't seem like that's going to get it done anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a whole ton of questions in that we also have a ton of, especially, you know, even around our office, we have a bunch of things that we think we know about MLS. And it's just like going back to the humbleness. It takes a certain amount of humility to say it's a huge, everything's changing right now and we can't be certain about anything. We can't be certain about what players are good enough. So I'm with you. It feels like a, it feels like things are really shifting right now. Again, we've been talking to Bobby Warshaw right now on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050. Bobby, while I've still got you, let me give you another uh, opportunity to plug your book so everybody can go out there and get themselves a copy. Yeah, thank you. My only, what I would say about the book is it's just I hope that it's a raw insight into what it's like to be a professional player and that if you read the book, you would watch the guys in the field and have a little better of a sense of what they go through every day on and off the field at home and their relationships. You know, So that that's my goal is that people who love soccer, people who love sports, or just people who appreciate vulnerability and what they go through in their, whole, you know, in their lives, hopefully what I write about in soccer is true in, in your life as well. Again, we've been talking to Bobby Warshaw, Stanford product, MLS player, author of When the Dream Became Reality, The Journey of a Professional Soccer Player and the Push for Meaning, Purpose, and Contentment. And, of course, now you can find his work with MLSsoccer.com. Bobby, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I appreciate your time. You've let me steal too much, but I hope we can do it again soon. All right, man? Yeah, thanks so much. Again, that was Bobby Warshaw. Again, you can find his book on Amazon.com. It is called When the Dream Became Reality, The Journey of a Professional Soccer Player and the Push for Meaning, Purpose, and Contentment. Plus, you can find MLSsoccer.com. That about wraps it up for another edition of the Soccer Hour. I am Ted Ramey. As always, a big thank you to the Bay Area soccer community. A big thank you to the San Jose Earthquakes for making this show a reality. And I will see you all next Wednesday night.